Chapter 4 of A Mystery of the Woods by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Through the darkness the old trapper paddled toward his camp. He checked the onward course of his boat as if canvassing in his own mind the advisability of returning in order to investigate still further the character of his enemies and the object of their encampment. But each time his judgment ruled against his impulse and he continued his course toward his cabin. We say his enemies, for as such it was evident that henceforth the men in the camp on the point were to be regarded, and enemies of such a sort too, that little delay could be expected in their efforts for his destruction. No, no, said the trapper to himself, thinking as was his custom when alone aloud. No, no, it would be downright foolishness for a man to put his moccasin on that beach again tonight, arter what has passed. For the vagabonds be in earnest in their deviltry, and I have learnt them the value of watchfulness that they won't forget while they stay in the woods. It may be that I acted a little hasty. Yes, I do conceit I acted unrational in cuffing the chap as I did, for it broke up the council and the Lord only knows what I might have heard of their evil doing if I'd acted with better judgment, and let their loose talking go on. But I was pretty nigh em for certain, and if they'd begun to walk around careless-like, they'd stumbled over me. Leastwise, it's reasonable to think so, and then there would have been a good deal of liveliness going on around that point, and in such a case something would certainly have happened, and then and here the old trapper intermitted a couple of strokes and trailed his paddle for a moment, as if communing with his innermost self. Yes, yes, he resumed. I've consorted with the old dog nigh on to fourteen year, and he saved me from the knife of the vagabond there, as the villain said, not to speak of other like services he's done me off and on, acting according to his gifts. Sport is a dying gift of the lad, and I remember well when he gin me that dog. And it's unreasonable to think that a man who loves the pups could lie within arm's reach of a man and hear him talking of poisoning em, which is downright murder, as I conceit, and not learn him a little caution in speaking of the Lord's creatures. Yes, I'm glad I cuffed him as I did, for the vagabond lacks manners, and it's an actual mercy to educate such ignorance. And if the Lord gives a man a chance to do such an act, it's downright sin not to improve the opportunity, as the missioners say, as I conceit. Thus communing with his own thoughts, the trapper held on his course, paddling slowly through the darkness toward his camp. At last he reached the northern end of the lake and moved into the little bay in front of the grove of maples in which his cabin stood. Nor did he land at once, but twice he skirted the shore noiselessly, and when he landed he ran his boat against the shore with the utmost caution. For, he said to himself, there's no telling how many of the vagabonds there be, nor where they be, and it won't do in wartime when enemies are around to run into your own camp careless-like. It was not until with noiseless foot he had reached the door of his cabin and heard the welcoming whine of the hounds who had sensed him that he ventured to enter. You be good and sensible pups, said the old man to the dogs as he lighted a candle, made from the tallow of a buck with his own hands. Yes, you be knowing and faithful according to your gifts, and a man can sleep in peace with your muzzles on the threshold. 
Many be the time, Rover, that your father and your grandfather before you gave me warning when enemies were around me, seeking my life. And ye yourself saved me from the murder and knife of the vagabond on the point there, as the villain himself said. The Lord may certainly hold judgment against me if I ever again range my eyes through the sights if he be within decent distance and I don't bring his deviltry to an end. Here the old man paused and removing the caps from the tubes of his rifle wiped them with a buckskin rag until all moisture was removed. And then, recapping them, he called the dogs from their resting spot to his side and said, Pups, there be enemies round. Do you hear, Rover? There be enemies round. And for aught I know, the vagabonds may be out lying about the cabin afore morning. And here the old man fingered the locks of his rifle significantly and pointed toward the open door, while the hounds pricked up their ears and scented the air with lifted muzzles. Ay, ay, I see you understand, continued the trapper, and I must sleep, and ye must wake to-night. Here, pups, come here and make your bed by the door, and do ye give me warning if ye sent man or beast to Fort on, and do ye remember, Rover, and the trapper patted the hound's head, that your master sleeps with nothing but your nose and your senses atween him and danger. So saying, the trapper motioned the dogs to their bed, where they crouched with their muzzles actually resting on the door sill while he, throwing some skins onto the floor behind them, with his rifle by his side and his hand resting on the stock, lay down to sleep, knowing that between him and any enmity of men lay two faithful sentinels who would keep certain watch until the morning should dawn. The light of early morning was just beginning to redden in the east when the trapper woke from his slumber. He rose at once from the skins on which he had been sleeping and speaking pleasantly to the dogs who still lay stretched side by side as he had placed them hours before, he passed out of the door and ranged his eyes up the lake. Then, calling the hounds to his side, he sent them by a motion of his hand and a word of prompting, circling around the cabin as if in search of game. In a moment the dogs returned, having given no cry and stood wagging their tails in front of him. "'All right, pups, all right,' exclaimed the trapper. "'I know what you mean, for you tell me as plain as words of truth could speak it, "'that foot of man has not touched the shore to-night. "'Do ye stay where ye be until the meat is ready, "'and do ye keep your eyes on the water and your noses toward the bush, "'for I mistrust the vagabonds, "'and when they come they must find John Norton waiting for them. "'If fighting comes in downright earnest,' muttered the old man as he entered the cabin to prepare the meal. I certainly wish the boy was here, for his eye is keen and his finger quick, and his piece is a good'un, and eight to one is big odds. The meal was soon prepared, and moving the table through the doorway, the old trapper proceeded to eat it with evident relish. The hounds kept their station, while the vigilant eyes and active muzzles bore evidence that even the smell and sight of food could not cause them to forget their master's commands. The sun was already risen, and the fog that heavily swathed the level lake began to roll itself southward, as moved by the rising current of air, resembling nothing so much as gigantic rolls of carded wool, whose tapering ends touched either shore. Before the meal was ended, the surface of the lake, Lively with ripples lay plain to view, 
The old trapper was cleaning his plate with the last morsel of bread, preliminary to eating it, when a low growl from both the hounds simultaneously sounded their warning. Aye, aye, pups, answered the trapper. I see what ye see. It's one of the vagabonds for certain, for far off as it is I can see it's a canoe, and paddled by a man who uses his paddle as if it was a Dutch woman's washing board. Don't get uneasy, pups, for he's a good mile away yet. And if he don't get the swing of the ash better than he's got it yet, it'll take him a good hour to cover the distance, unless he quits the canoe and takes to swimming. So, pups, come here and take your breakfast like rational dogs as you be, and never mind the canoe, for there's plenty of time, and many a fight and many a race by man and dog alike is won at the table, for a full stomach at the table makes a stout heart in the scrimmage. So saying, the trapper proceeded to feed the hounds bountifully, which, having done, he cleared away the dishes and carried the table back into the cabin. By this time the canoe was within a quarter mile of the beach, and the trapper, with his rifle in the hollow of his arm, walked leisurely down to the bank and waited the approach of the canoe, which, with the awkward motion of a novice, was being lumberingly pushed along, and needed but a glance on the part of the trapper to reveal the fact that the man in the canoe was the same who had been the spokesman of the party on the night of his first call at the camp on the point, and whose coolness had extorted the old man's admiration. From the elevation on which the trapper stood, he could easily command not merely a full view of the person of the paddler from head to foot, but the bottom of the canoe also from stem to stern, and it was patent at a glance that the man was totally unarmed, and the boat empty of weapons, save in the belt of the paddler was a knife, and on the bow of the canoe, where it was decked over, was a pair of long-barreled dueling pistols. When some fifty rods from the shore the paddler checked his boat and, taking a white handkerchief from his pocket, waved it over his head. Aye, aye, called the trapper in answer to the signal. I know the language of your sign, and many be the times I've seen it waved when smoke was thick and bodies of men covered the ground. Yes, yes, hist your craft along if you can, or shall I have to come out and tow ye in? Thus encouraged, the boatman renewed his efforts and by dint of great exertion soon brought it within forty yards of the beach, when he again checked his efforts, and for a full moment inspected the trapper. The trapper returned the inquisition of the stranger, and it is safe to say that there was little about the other that either of them didn't see. The stranger was of medium size, and dressed in a manner which divided his garments equally between the fashion of the woods and the city. His moccasins were almost snow-white, and gaily ornamented with beads of many colors. His pantaloons were of check cashmere, of sober shade, and as clean and unseamed as if just from the hands of a tailor. His belt was of the color of his moccasins, and as gaily ornamented. The handle of his knife was of solid pearl. His white shirt, for he wore neither vest nor coat, was immaculately clean, and from the center of its ruffled front blazed a magnificent diamond. On the little finger of his left hand, as it rested carelessly on the paddle shaft, glowed with equal splendor a companion gem. The hands themselves were white, and for a man's exceedingly delicate. His face, in the clean-cut outline of dominant features, was positively classical, and as it was clean-shaven save as to the mustache, 
It showed in great advantage against a background of long, wavy, jet-black hair that fell on a curling mass even to his shoulders. His lips were full and curved like a girl's, his nose straight as a Greek's, the nostrils thin, his eyes a keen, steely gray. "'Good morning, old man,' said the stranger, breaking the silence at last, and as he spoke his lips parted pleasantly, and the teeth showed snow-white behind the smiling lines. I've come down to make you a call and have a little fun with you, if you feel good-natured enough to grant me an interview. Then there's something I want to talk over with you about the camp on the point, so there needn't be any misunderstanding about matters. Can I come ashore, old man? Yes, answered the old man. You can come in, but afore you come in, it's best we understand each other, for if you expect to come any of your little pranks on an old man whose eye and ear and finger, for that matter, learnt their tricks on the trail and in the scrimmage, I might as well tell you, young man, that you'll come in a good deal livelier than you'll go out, for I've stood about all the sass I shall from ye chaps on the point, and if you poke me up any more, something will happen. Yes, you can come in, and if you act square, you can go out. But if you try to play any nasty trick on me, or even get sassy-like with your tongue, why, then some of your comrades and your deviltry will have to come and fetch you out. You understand the terms now, and if you like the conditions, you can paddle in and welcome. But let me say that any little motions you might make toward them pistols there and passing would send you into eternity afore your finger could touch the trigger. For I have a piece that works quick, and my muzzle always covers uncertain game when I go into a thicket. Oh, that's all right, said the man pleasantly. If you and I ever fight, we'll fight on an even deal. I didn't come to fight, John Norton, and if I had, I'd shuffle fair. I bet on luck and go my pile on the fickle jade. If she favors and I win, I laugh. If she frowns and I lose, I laugh as gaily. She's favored me thus far, and I shall trust her to the end of the game. When the game ends, is pure luck also. How's that for doctrine, John Norton? And so saying, the gambler stepped ashore, and, climbing the bank, stopped in front of the old trapper, while he busied himself in brushing the sand from his gaily wrought moccasins. It's the devil's own doctrine, young man, answered the trapper. A man dies when he dies by the Lord's appointment for he has numbered the hairs of our heads, and the length of our days, be they few or many, be writ in his book. It's not by luck that I have passed through the dangers of sixty years spent on the trail and the deadly scrimmage, or that my hairs be whitening in peace, but because the hour that the Lord has fixed for me to stand in the great clearing has not yet come, and the end of my trail is not yet reached. That's my doctrine, young man." and it's good in scripture and reason both, as I conceit. It may be as you say, touching yourself, John Norton, answered the gambler, but I belong to another generation and see things differently. The book you put faith in, I don't care a deuce for, and luck is better than reason when the wheel goes round and the coin is plenty. Scripture and reason ain't mentioned in the rules of the game I play, and in my business luck governs the points, and the man laughed lightly and even merrily as he spoke. "'What be your business?' asked the trapper. "'I amuse people,' answered the man. "'And take the conceit out of fools.' And again he laughed pleasantly. "'I don't understand you,' replied the trapper. "'And again I ask you, what be your business, and how do you amuse people?' "'With ease,' 
and the man whipped a pack of cards out of his pocket and shuffled them carelessly. With these I amuse people and take the conceit out of fools. Ye be a gambler, exclaimed the trapper, and ye be the devil's own child. I shouldn't wonder, replied the man, if I was. The relationships in genteel society are a good deal mixed, and it's a wise son that knows his own father. You don't play, old man? The fellow put the interrogation with the coolness of long habit. The Lord forbid, answered the trapper. I never touched a card in my life, nor do I know the pictures one from another. And a look of abhorrence and contempt on his rugged features gave supreme emphasis to the assertion. I'm sorry, replied the gambler, and for the first time since he landed his face took a sober expression. I swear by the aces and the bowers I'm sorry. For if you even knew the value of the cards, we could have settled the matter between us without further trouble. What matter do you mean? inquired the trapper. I've had no traffic with you, and there's nothing to settle. Yes, there's something between us, coolly answered the gambler. And something mighty serious, too. And something that's got to be settled pleasantly before I leave this beach, or it'll be settled unpleasantly after I leave it. And the man paused and looked at the trapper significantly. You certainly know a good deal more than I do, answered the trapper, and as I never say anything unless I have something to say, you'd better speak first. Very well, replied the gambler. I don't know much about the game I'm playing, but it's always safe to lead an ace, so here goes. The matter I came to speak to you about, and to arrange if possible, is the camp on the point. There it is, old man, on the board. Cover it. Sartin, answered the trapper. I don't quite catch the meaning of your gambler's talk, but I'll settle that business on the point there in about a week, as the signs now point. What do you propose to do? asked the gambler coolly. I concede that I shall know what's inside the big tent in about a week, answered the trapper as coolly. But a day more or less when you're at a game of that size don't matter, and it shouldn't be particular. You'll be more likely to know what's in heaven, laughingly replied the gambler. Oh, no, old man. I told the captain when I got up this morning that it wasn't a fair game. The cards are stocked, and we hold the whole pack seven to one. It's no fair. There's no chance for luck, and it's nothing short of murder. And I told the captain to his face that I wouldn't see a man wiped out in that style, and I came down to see if we couldn't sort of ante up and get out of it without any unpleasantness. The gambler was unmistakably earnest. That the old trapper could see. To him, the death of the trapper seemed a foregone conclusion. He knew the character of the crowd to which he belonged, and the deadliness of their purpose. He knew the skill and murderous energy with which they could launch themselves against the man in whom they all recognized a common enemy. It was certainly evident that, however debasing the practice of his profession might be, the gambler recognized the code, and was exerting himself to the full extent of his power to avoid what seemed to him not battle, but murder. The motive which had prompted him to his visit was honorable, and the old man was not slow to see that underneath the surface of reckless wickedness there still survived those honorable instincts which make the civilized man to differ from the barbarian. I'm much obliged to you, answered the trapper, for though your errand be foolish, yet your motive was a good un. But you needn't worry about me. I know the man I have to deal with on the point and there's a little outstanding account between us that ought to be settled. And as for the odds, it's enough to make the issue uncertain, 
and that's all there is to say about it. If it be the Lord's will that I meet my end this week and on this lake, he'll find John Norton ready when he calls. But there's deviltry on that point, and I'll find it out. Egad, old man, I must say that I like the way you hold your cards. And though I know it would be against luck, and we would be bound to lose, yet I swear if I wasn't dealing for the other side I'd assist myself. But as it is, you've got to play it alone. And I tell you the cards are against you, for I made the deal. And now, for God's sake, let us settle this thing peaceably. I have heard of your fame, and I never heard but one thing of you. And now that I look upon you, and see your white head, well, damn it, it almost makes a fool of me. And the game can't be played out. I told the captain that it couldn't be played out. And if I go back, without an arrangement, it will be played out. So don't shake your head, but let me make a proposition. I said, young man, answered the trapper, that ye was the devil's own child, and I don't say that I'll change my ideas of ye, but I will say that if ye be the devil's own child, you've got a good broad streak of righteousness in ye somewhere, but it's mighty risky the way ye're going on, for ye be in a mighty bad set. Look here, old man, answered the gambler. You listen. Now you understand that I shall play this thing through unless you settle, but don't think that I don't know I'm playing with mighty dirty cards. I didn't choose a pack. You see, I didn't start the thing. A friend of mine had it in hand. He had done me a good turn once, a little matter where pistols and morning ride came in. He is a little careless, careless-footed, you know, and coming out of a house in Quebec one night he stumbled. There happened to be a knife at the bottom of the steps, and the knife accidentally went through him. He killed the fellow and staggered to my lodgings before he started the knife. The doctor said he would live, but the upshot of it was that I had to take his cards. That's the way I got into this little matter, and that's why, old man, I've got to play the game through. If it was mine, I would throw it up. But I've come down to make you a proposition. You can say what you've got to say, answered the trapper. You can say what you've got to say, young man, but I don't concede that the signs print towards peace, for there is a right and a wrong about it, and that makes bargaining out of the question, as I judge. I tell you what I will do, responded the gambler. I'll draw with you for it. And as he spoke, he shuffled all the face cards out of the pack onto the ground. You don't understand the value of the pictures, but you do know that two was more than one and ten more than five. I make this proposition. The highest number wins. If you draw higher than I, you shall not be disturbed. If I draw higher than you, you shan't disturb us. Come, how do you take it? I don't do things that way, answered the trapper. When I draw, as you call it, it'll be in a different fashion. For a moment the gambler stood perplexed, and an expression almost of pain crossed his handsome features and a customary nonchalance of his manner sobered into gravity, and then he said, Old man, the game has got to stop. It's all one-sided and simply murder. I will give you a second plan, and, for God's sakes, don't say nay to it. There is a man about your age down on the coast. He and I have not had much to do with each other for some years. You see, we had a little conversation one evening, and I left that night. I have not seen him since. He's about your age. Your head makes me think of him. There is a slight relationship between us. They call it father, I think. Well, no matter about that. I want to stop this thing right here, 
and this is what I propose. You see those pistols? They are favorites of mine. I say plainly that there is but one man in the world to whom I cannot give odds and win. I know your skill, and the piece that lies in your arm is, I suppose, your favorite. I tell you what we'll do. If you won't draw for it, we will shoot for it. Anyway, so that the cards shan't be packed, old man. Anyway, so that the cards shan't be packed. And then the man, after a moment's pause, said, Will you shoot for it? What's the match? asked the trapper. Do you mean what's the prize? interrogated the gambler. Certain, certain, answered the trapper. A man don't want to burn powder for nothing, not to speak of the caps and the lead. Though the caps be plenty, and the boy sends in lead by the ton. The prize is this, answered the gambler. We will shoot three shots. If I win, you are to let the camp alone. If you win, the game goes on if you choose. What say you to that? The matter of shooting, answered the trapper, is kind of pleasant diversion to a man of my gifts at this time of the year when the bucks be lean, the does be with a fawn, and the fur loose on the skin. And if you want a little playfulness, why the air be clear and the light just about right, and as for your pistols shooting, Henry has told me a good deal off and on about the tricks the professors have, and it may be you can show an old man some new devices and a surer way to drive lead than he has learnt in sixty year of practice with the weapon. Yes, you name your targets, and we'll shoot the three shots, and if you beat me in the shooting, and I'll take the pups and start for the Saranac before you can paddle your canoe over to your camp. For the boy's coming in soon, and the Lord knows I wouldn't have him see the man that beat me shooting when I was using the lead and the powder and the caps he has sent me. Yes, I'll accept the terms. The angel that keeps the book in which the emotions of human hearts are recorded will surely remember in the hour of his deepest need the flush of satisfaction that lighted the pale face of the gambler and the joy which leapt to his heart as the old man, whose whitened head had reminded him of his distant and deserted father, closed with his propositions. He turned toward his canoe with a foot swift and light as a boy's, when buoyant with happiness. For knowing his own almost matchless skill, he felt confident of winning the match and thus saving from murderous violence the old man to whom his heart had, as he conversed with him, more and more strongly gone out. With a fine touch of chivalry, which the trapper was not slow to notice, the gambler left one pistol in the boat, and returning with equal chivalry, proposed to shoot the first shot himself. "'You needn't think that I mistrust you, boy, for I don't,' said the trapper. "'But it may be the thought of my faith in you will make your nerves steadier in the trial. Make it seem more like a little playfulness between us, and not a matter of life and death, as it's pretty certain to be. So—' Pick out your target and show us the nature of your gifts. Lord of mercy, if the boy was here, what fun we three might have. This is the first trial, said the man. You see two cones on that pine, the two that stand tipping the third branch from the water. I will take the lower. If it is left, you can take it, said the gambler laughingly. If not, the other. And as the last word sounded, his pistol cracked sharp and quick and the little cone no larger than a marble disappeared. "'You did it well,' said the trapper. "'I've picked that tree nearly clean myself, but I will take the one you left.' And the vibrations of a last word were lost in the ring of the piece as he discharged it. The gambler looked at the twig, now bare, 
and he looked at the trapper and said, "'Hunters are easy, old man,' and he laughed like a boy. But through the laughter quivered the vibration of graver quality, almost of pain. In a moment each of the two men had reloaded his weapon, and the trapper said, "'What next, friend?' "'This,' answered the gambler, and walking off some twenty paces put a deuce of spades against the stump. And returning, he said, "'I take the lower,' and again his pistol cracked quick as thought. "'And I take the upper,' said the trapper, and his bullet drove through the upper spot as the gambler's head through the lower. Again they recharged their pieces. "'What next?' asked the trapper. "'There's only one more bullet, and it isn't certain whether I go to the Saranac or to the point.' "'Say, rather, old man, that it is not certain whether you go to the Saranac or your death,' almost solemnly reiterated the gambler. The Lord beyond doubt knows, answered the trapper, but the shooting may help him decide. But the humor of the trapper started no answering smile on the countenance of the gambler. He said not a word, but took two glass balls, brightly gilded, from his pocket, and giving one to the trapper, he said, A flying shot. I have never missed but once. And steadying himself for a moment, he breathed his breath from his chest and tossed the shining globe high into the air. Up! Up it went, another second and it would reach the apex of its upward flight, at which point the trapper knew full well the gambler had calculated to take it. Was it fate? Was it providence? Was it the gambler's luck that even at the instant when it came to the point of its highest flight, a puff of wind caught it suddenly and blew it outward as if it were a feather, and the bullet from the gambler's pistol missed it by its width? But another bullet did not miss it, for scarcely had the pistol cracked before the trapper jumped his rifle to his cheek, and as the wind swept the shining globe out over the lake, his bullet caught it as it flew, and the globe burst into gilded fragments. The game goes on, said the gambler, and he turned carelessly toward the canoe, but his face was white in its excitement, though not a muscle moved. He had nearly reached the canoe when he turned, and stepping quickly back in front of the trapper, he said, Look here, old man, the game will go against you, for the cards are stocked and you stand no chance. I thought to stop and play and save your life, but for the first time in years luck has turned against me, and when we meet again we meet as enemies. Still, I like the way you hold your cards, and though you play a lone hand, one against seven, still luck may pull you through. So, not knowing how it will end, we'll part man style. Your heart is right, your eye is sure, and your finger quick. And though I'm in for it, and shall play the game through and kill you if I can, yet in my heart, old Whitehead, I trust to God you'll win. And there's Dick Raymond's hand upon it. And there's my hand, young man, answered the trapper promptly. You've come on a fool's errand, but your motive was right. And though I honestly think the devil will have you, Yet it may be the Lord of mercy that will give you a chance in the judgment. Leastwise, I'll put in a word or two for you when your case comes up for hearing. All right, answered the gambler as he turned away, laughing in his own light, reckless fashion. Small change is good when you can't get pills. There'll be enough to testify the other way. And entering his canoe, he pushed it out upon the lake and paddled the best he might toward the point. End of chapter 4